0: We will be uh, in John 11 for three or four weeks. This is very similar. There's a lot of sections in the Gospel of John that we will break down into bite-sized pieces, but it's very important to keep uh, the larger story at the forefront of our minds. John 11 is a very popular story for it's perhaps the most significant of the signs of Jesus, where he raises Lazarus from the dead, and there's many beautiful treasures. Uh, to be sought out in this passage. So I'll pray uh, very quickly and then we will read through uh, John 11. We're going to be in verses 1 to 16 today, but borrowing from the wider story as we go through it. So let me pray. Father, we ask that you would uh, make our hearts and our minds so attentive to your word now and that you would speak to us For your servants are listening so be glorified in this time we ask in jesus name amen amen Amen. wonderful let me uh read out from john 11 verses 1 to 16. this is god's word now a certain man was ill lazarus of bethany Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died and for your sake I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. This is God's word. Now John 11 marks a bit of a transition point as we work through the gospel of John where the first uh, 10 chapters, really the first 11, uh, are full of the signs of Jesus. Uh, it's debatable as to which seven are the, the seven signs, depending on which ones you count. But certainly there is uh, seven signs, seven clear signs that Jesus does where they are displayed in public and they display his glory. And the first uh, 10 or 11 chapters are full of those signs now Uh, after having done a lot of his work in public, we're in this transition period where from chapter 12 onwards, he begins to be a lot more private. At the end of chapter 11, we read that he no longer walked openly, amongst the Jews, for they are trying to kill him. And the next several chapters up until the cross is really Jesus in private teaching his disciples. So there's a real transition point from chapter 11 and 12 onwards. In chapter 11, we have Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And then on the back end of this, Jesus is being led into the final week of his life which will end in his own death. So the first 11 chapters take place over a number of years. Uh, these last the last half of the Gospel of John is really just this last week of Jesus' life on earth, which of course ends in his death and resurrection. And what we have consistently breaking into the storyline of Jesus' life and his ministry is the glory of God. So John signaled this to us in John chapter 1, verse 14, if you remember, John begins by saying, The Word who was in the beginning with God and who was God, He has taken on flesh and dwelt among us, and we have beheld His glory. We have seen His glory. And then the rest of Jesus' life is just displaying the glory of God as he performs these signs and wonders to show his glory. And it is all pointing toward the death and resurrection of Christ, which is where we see the fullest and clearest picture of the glory of God. And in our passage today, in Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, in this story in chapter 11, it's like we're getting a foretaste of this glory. We're getting a foretaste of the glory of God that is going to be displayed in the cross of Christ. We see it in Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. We see it because in verse 4, you'll notice Jesus is very clear to say that this thing that is happening is for the glory of God. It is happening so that the Son of God would be glorified in this. Now, here's where we have to establish a foundation of the glory of God to begin with. God's glory... In simple terms, is his radiant character of perfect holiness and infinite value. The glory of God is, is almost a public display of this perfect holiness of God. As we began by today, God is so holy, there is no sin within him at all, nor can sin come near him. He is completely perfect. He is radiant in his character. He is of infinite value, and the glory of God is like that being beamed out to the public. It's everything that draws this fearful awe and reverent worship from within us toward him. That's the glory of God. And something that we see throughout scripture is that God is very, very passionate about his own glory. He prizes his glory above everything In Isaiah 42 8, Yahweh says, I am Yahweh, this is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. So he's saying, I do not yield my glory to anyone else, it's mine, it's rightfully mine, no one will take it from me. God cares deeply about his glory, and he has created all things for his glory. Romans 11:36 Paul ends that beautiful section in 9 to 11 by saying for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever everything is working toward the glory of God this is especially the case for those whom God redeems in Isaiah 43 Verses six to seven, Yahweh is speaking and he is saying, bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. That's what he's saying. Bring all of my children to me because I created them for my glory. So they must come to me because I will be glorified as they are brought to me. We are made For the glory of God. God cares about his glory above all things. And all things are working toward his glory. Now we will see that in this passage today. That everything is working toward the glory of God. So as we begin in verse 2, from verse 2 John sets the scene for this by introducing us to Mary and Martha. Now notice that it is assumed that we know who Mary and Martha are. R, he says, it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. Now, in the Gospel of John, that's not actually recorded until the next chapter. Uh, we know of it because we've probably heard the story many times before. John doesn't actually record that until chapter 12, verses 1 to 8. But of course, he is mentioning that here because John is writing his Gospel account Uh, clearly decades after the event, and we know very clearly uh, that that event was very significant in that area. And even if you believe that this event is similar to the other gospel accounts where Mary anoints Jesus, Jesus specifically says wherever the gospel is proclaimed, so what this woman has done will be told throughout the world. So by the time John is writing this, it's common knowledge of what Mary did, This is a prominent family as well. They were very close to Jesus. So John writes this, even though he hasn't recorded the event yet, because uh, it's common knowledge. Most of the hearers to John's gospel would have been aware of Mary who anointed the Lord before his death. And what we can see, perhaps this is the most significant thing about John introducing us to this family here of Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, is that there is a deep Love that the Lord has for them. It's amazing to see this. It's amazing to see that the humanity of Jesus in his deep love for this family. Notice uh, that the sisters send to Jesus, and in verse 3 they say, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Notice that they don't say, uh, The one who loves you, Jesus, is ill, so come and help him. They actually say, uh, The one who you, Jesus, love is ill. Likewise for us, of course, our relationship is based upon his love for us rather than our love for him. In verse 5, we read that Jesus loved Martha, her sister, and Lazarus. In verse 36, which we won't get to until next week, we see Jesus weeping, and the crowd look on and say, look how he loved this people. Look how much he loved them. So Jesus clearly has a deep love For these people and this love that Jesus has for them is one of the key reasons why he allows Lazarus to die. That's an incredible thing. The love that Jesus has for this family is one of the key reasons why he allows Lazarus to die. It's one of the key reasons why he allows so much pain and suffering, the grief of losing Lazarus, for he does die And it's the love of Jesus that allows this to happen because the love of Jesus, though it brings about an extremely painful set of circumstances for Mary and Martha and for Lazarus facing death, it must occur for them to more fully see the glory of God. They must walk through this for them to see the glory of God. And as they see the glory, like the Apostle Paul says, I'm sure they are able to say the sufferings that we went through are no longer worthy to be compared with the glory that we have now seen. So from verse 4, Jesus responds immediately to the message that Lazarus is ill. And he says, this illness does not lead to death, but it is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, we know that Lazarus dies. It's not really a spoiler alert, though we won't get to that specific part today. But of course, Lazarus does die. Jesus knows he's going to die. But Jesus is saying that death is not the final destination here. Death is not the point of this. Death is not the destination. So this illness is not stopping at death. Rather, this illness is trending toward the glory of God, just as the man who was born blind in chapter 9, we saw Jesus very clearly say, the point of his blindness isn't to work out who sinned, the point is so that the works of God may be more clearly seen. Likewise, for this illness, the point is not death, rather that the glory of God Might be seen. So Lazarus and his illness becomes this necessary scene in the storyline of God's glory being more fully displayed. And what we will see throughout this story is that one of our greatest needs in this life, one of our greatest needs in this life is to see the glory of God far above freedom from suffering, far above freedom from pain. Far above a great life, one of our greatest needs above all of that is to see the glory of God. And because Jesus loves us, he desires that we see this glory. It is the best possible thing for us that God shows his glory because it is what we were made for. This is what we see in verse 5 if we move along. Notice it says here, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, So, or we might say, therefore, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. I hope that's clear in the passage. John is saying because Jesus loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus, he allowed Lazarus to die. Effectively, that's what it's saying. Because Jesus loved them, he remained two days longer after he had heard that Lazarus was ill. He stayed two days longer so that he could not immediately heal Lazarus. Now, Jesus could have easily healed Lazarus. That has to be clear. We've already seen in chapter four, Jesus healed the official son without even being in the same location. He's already displayed that he can heal from a distance, but here he specifically does not do that. He remains where he is, which means Lazarus is going to die, and everything about that is because he loves them. Everything about that is because he has a deep love for these people. We see the same thing if we jump ahead all the way to the end of our passage from verses 11 to 15, we see the same idea there where in verse uh, 11, uh, Jesus uh, explains that Lazarus has fallen asleep. He has to clarify and say, actually, he is dead. He's not simply asleep. And notice that Jesus then says from verse 14 and 15, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there. Literally, it's I rejoice that I was not there. It's an unusual thing on surface level because it's as if Jesus is saying, I rejoice that I was not there to heal Lazarus. I rejoice that he died because it's going to set the scene. For a tremendous display of my glory, and so in that I rejoice. And he says, For your sake, you, my disciples, I rejoice, so that you may see this and so that you may believe. So that's what's going on here. The love that Christ has for his people drives him to show this glory, because this is the goal of all things. All things are working toward the glory of God. As Paul says in Colossians, all things were created through him and for him, that is for Jesus, everything is created through him and for him, namely for his glory, that he would be seen as glorious. And since Christ is committed to this goal of God showing his glory, he is committed to revealing that glory to those whom he has made for his glory. So again, our greatest need in this life is not that we are free from sickness or free from suffering. Rather, our greatest need in this life is to see the glory of God, for it is what we were made for. It is what everything was made for. We were made for this glory. We were made to bask in the glory of God. We are made to worship. We will worship something God rightly shows his glory that all of our worship would be directed toward him so that he is seen as utterly glorious and that is the most satisfying thing for us. So God in his loving kindness and rich mercy actually delights to reveal his glory and it is his love that means that he protects that glory because for him to give that glory to anyone else would be the worst possible thing for us. So Jesus allows devastating grief and tremendous sorrow to occur in the death of Lazarus so that the glory of God might be displayed. That's what we're seeing here. And it is because he loves these people that he allows this to happen. So just think about everything that had to occur for the glory of God to be seen. Think about it from Mary and Martha's perspective. Mary and Martha had to feel the fullness of grief. They didn't know that Lazarus was going to be raised from the dead. They had to feel the fullness of that grief. We'll see that next week as Lazarus is dead for at least four days and they had to feel the fullness and any of you who have lost someone very close to you will remember how that feels and they had to enter in to the fullness of that grief that is associated with death. Jesus himself had to feel the fullness of grief. He had to experience all of the consequences of death that is so ugly and so devastating for people who experience that. Though Jesus is fully God, he is fully man, and he felt every ounce of that grief. We'll see next week how Jesus is weeping as Mary comes to him and says to him, Lord, you, if you were here, Lazarus wouldn't have died. And Jesus weeps and everyone looks upon him and sees what a great love that he has for the people as he is weeping because he sees the devastation of sin and death that it causes. Jesus fully well knew that he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead, but yet he feels the fullness of that grief. So there is a lot of pain and sorrow that had to occur on this path toward the glory of God being seen. A tremendous amount of pain and sorrow that had to occur. And here is where we see some fundamental lessons about God's purpose in revealing his glory. Two primary lessons about God revealing his glory. Firstly, grief, sorrow, and afflictions are often necessary for God to lovingly show His glory. Grief and sorrow are often necessary for God to lovingly show His glory. Now we see intuitively in life how love often requires pain. In various ways, the loving discipline of parents to their children requires pain, both pain from the child, but pain from the parent who has to inflict pain upon their child as a consequence of their misbehavior. Parents will physically discipline their children. They will withhold certain things so that the child tangibly feels the consequences of their misbehavior, and all of this from good parents is, of course, done in love. It is a loving thing to discipline children in a similar way. God's love requires that he leads us into various afflictions. God's love requires that he disciplines us through suffering so that we may see his glory in a particular way. See, Jesus could have spared a lot of pain and sorrow in this family. He could have spared them from that by just healing them. But it would not have led them to this place of seeing the glory of God in this beautiful picture in Lazarus coming out of the tomb alive and seeing the glory of God. They had to walk through all of that suffering in order to fully see the glory of God. Of God. We see this in the life of Paul. If I can give an example from Scripture in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul explains to the Corinthian church that they were in great affliction. And he says, we were so utterly burdened. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. He says we actually wanted to die. We, we had given up. <laughs> And Paul says, God did this so that we might not rely upon ourselves, but upon the God who raises the dead. God sovereignly ordained all of these circumstances, every bit of my experience where I despaired of life itself, God sovereignly brought that about. Why? So that I would stop relying upon myself and I would rely upon the God who raises the dead. Or another way of saying that is we felt as though we were given over to death, but this happened so that we might see the glory of God as we see his sustaining hand upon our circumstances, even in the face of death, as we feel his preserving hand upon us. We saw the glory of God. It had to happen. For self-sufficiency never reveals the glory of God. But when we are weaned off of that, we see the glory of God in his sustaining hand upon us. And here is part of the goal in God lovingly revealing his glory to us through afflictions. It is precisely through tremendous afflictions and devastation that God is seen to be absolutely glorious. When is God seen to be glorious when you see someone who has everything you could ever want in this world? God is not seen to be glorious, it merely glorifies that person or the possessions. If Jesus had have healed Lazarus before death, now we could say it would have been a glorious sign, but what is far more glorious is that Lazarus is dead, all hope is gone, and then He is raised from the dead and God is seen to be far more glorious than if Lazarus had simply been healed. Now this is the case for our circumstances in this life. For us to experience the devastation of sin and its effects upon us and still feel the Lord's sustaining hand in our lives. For us to have the most horrible of afflictions and still be able to have that inner witness within us that says I cannot curse my God in any way I will praise him though he slay me yet I will praise him God is seen to be absolutely glorious in that person who walks through horrible horrible afflictions and still says he is absolutely treasurable to me above everything else so that if He takes away everything. He is supremely worthy of my praise and adoration. And that makes God absolutely glorious. And God is pleased to lead us into what seems like death to more fully show the life that we have in Christ. God is pleased to give us over in that sense to death, the death of the flesh, so that we might more fully see the life that we have in Christ, And here is part of the great comfort that we can have in this. See, in Christ, God has nullified the devastation often associated with our circumstances in this fallen world. Let me explain that. God has made void the devastation, though we feel all of the uh, devastation in the sense of the effects of sin in this world, God has in Christ actually nullified the full power of that devastation. Just as we see here, God uses this illness not to lead to death, but to the glory of God. So it is in our lives where we see God use the devastation of poverty in order to lead people to see the true riches that we have in Christ. Or God uses the darkness of loneliness and depression to lead us to his overwhelming comfort because he is a God who is close to the brokenhearted and who saves those who are crushed in spirit. He uses excruciating persecution. He uses torture from evil dictators throughout history to cause his church to absolutely explode as people look upon those who were burned at the stake or crucified and they see an otherworldly hope and all of a sudden Christ looks supremely glorious amongst that backdrop and the church explodes through that. God has nullified the devastation of circumstances because now everything that is seen as devastating in this world. God, in his beautiful judo flip type thing that he's doing, uses what was meant for evil and always brings it about for his glory and our good in some beautiful way. And in that sense, he has nullified the devastation of the effects of sin in this world. For even death itself is merely the entrance to eternal life for us. So God has taken away the sting of death, the power of sin in this world, because we know that in Christ, all things are working together for our good and his glory. So it is through these afflictions that we more fully see the glory of God, because he's always using what was meant for evil to work for his good and his glory. So for Mary and Martha to have walked through the deepest parts of that grief. Imagine that, to have experienced their brother dying. Perhaps they knew that Jesus had received the message and they realized that he didn't respond to their request immediately and then to be in the depth of that grief and then to have Christ come. And to raise Lazarus from the dead, to have Lazarus walk out of that tomb and to see that glory, imagine the joy, the ecstasy of joy that they would have experienced and the fact that they walked through the deepest of suffering simply led to more glory that they experienced. Grief, sorrow and afflictions are often necessary for God to lovingly show His glory. That's the first lesson. The second lesson that we see about God lovingly showing his glory is that pursuing the glory of God requires a God-centered approach, not a man-centered approach. Pursuing the glory of God and God revealing the glory of God requires a God-centered approach, not a man-centered approach. So, Jesus is not a humanist. Now, I say that because a humanist and humanism is quite popular in the world that we live in. A humanist is someone that rightly sees the value of human life, but wrongly takes God out of the picture so that all sorts of chaos ensues when you prize the happiness of man above everything else. Now, there has been a lot of humanistic influences in modern Christianity, which is why I feel it's necessary to talk about. We prize the happiness of man above all things. So our churches and evangelistic attempts are geared toward making man happy. And we think man will be pretty happy with Jesus. So that's why we might present Jesus. But really the goal is to make man happy. We see this in people who downplay sin because that might offend someone and the happiness of people is what's most important and we don't want to offend them so we downplay certain sinful practices so as not to offend people. We see this in people who reinterpret scripture so that no single person would be restricted from any role within the church or from any relationship within life because to be restricted is offensive to people. It restricts our human flourishing, and that's not something that we want when the happiness of man is the primary goal. Now, think about this. If Jesus had any tendency toward this humanistic way of thinking, he would not have allowed Lazarus to die. He would not have allowed Mary and Martha to go through such suffering. He would have just wanted to prevent any unhappiness, and keep everyone happy, and so he would avoid any sort of circumstance where he's going to allow someone to die. But Jesus is not man-centered. He is God-centered, which is to say his primary goal is about glorifying the Father, and the Father's primary goal is about glorifying the Son, because all things were made for the glory of God. Now, let me explain why this is the best possible thing for us, the very fact that God is God-centered and not man-centered. God being God-centered is the best possible thing for us. Two quick reasons, because where God is committed to his own glory above all else, we know that he remains committed to his perfect character and a perfect standard of justice. Where God remains about himself, We know that there will remain a perfect standard of justice. We know that his character will remain consistent. We have seen the chaos that ensues in society where laws are governed by humanistic ways of thinking rather than the glory of God. Absolute hypocrisy follows. We see this where people prize human choice in pregnancy, so millions of babies are murdered. We prize human feelings above objective truth, so children are allowed to irreversibly disfigure their bodies. Now, this is the chaos that ensues when you take God out of the picture. Of course, in contrast to that, where God remains committed to his glory above all else, there always remains a perfect standard of justice because God will never do anything to call his glory into question. So he will maintain a perfect level of consistency in his character and his justice. So it is the best possible thing for God to care about his glory above all else. Secondly, the reason why this is wonderful news for us and a beautiful comfort to us is that where God remains committed to his glory, we have assurance that he will complete what he has begun. Now, let me work the the logic of this so that we can take great comfort in this. Because God is God-centered, he will not do anything to call his glory into question. He will not do anything to yield his glory to any other. And Jesus has been very clear through John's gospel to say, I will not lose a single one of my sheep. We have just seen this in John 10. So it is as though God is almost putting his reputation on the line by saying, I'm not going to yield my glory to any other And I'm going to tell everyone that I'm going to be glorified by saving every single one of my children. I will be glorified as I bring all of my sheep into my flock. If a single sheep of his was lost, it would call his glory into question. And the comfort we have is that God will never allow his glory to be given to any other. So because God has put his reputation on the line, so to speak, by saying, I'm going to save every single one of my sheep, we know that he will accomplish this because he cares about his reputation. This is the same idea that Moses actually interceded for the people. Remember, in the Exodus, and God was about to wipe away the people of Israel. And what was it that Moses said to God? He said, think of your reputation, God. Think of what the Egyptians will think of you if you don't save Israel. Israel out of this, they'll think that you couldn't do it. And Moses appeals to God on the, on the basis of God's glory and God's character. And this is the comfort that we have. We have tremendous assurance that whatever afflictions might come our way. Because God is God-centered and because God cares about his glory, we know that those afflictions become light and momentary because God is going to work them about into an eternal weight of glory for us because he is very invested in making sure that he completes what he began in us because to not complete it would call his glory into question. So this is the comfort that we can have. There is no meaninglessness "...in our afflictions. There is no worthlessness in any situation we go through, but rather because God remains true to his character, because God remains true to his glory, we know these afflictions will work to the glory of God. He is very committed to making our lives work toward the glory of God, since he created us for his glory." The same truths of verse 4 could be said of us, where Jesus says, This illness does not lead to death, but the glory of God. Likewise, this depression, this broken relationship, this bankruptcy, whatever the situation is does not ultimately lead to meaningless death, rather it leads to the glory of God in some miraculous way and not in any prosperity way as though you're assured that you're going to be a millionaire. That's not the case. It's all about the glory of God, not our glory. So we know all of our circumstances have no sense of meaninglessness. There's nothing worthless about anything we go to, which is the temptation, if you're in a really difficult situation, and the temptation is of course to think, what is the purpose of this? Why am I in this situation? We know with absolute clarity that it is for the glory of God. That's why you are in that situation. And we know that God will remain committed to bringing about the glory of God, so that even, as I said earlier, death itself, physical death itself, is not the destination for us rather death will reveal the glory of God as we are raised to new life in the resurrection so God has completely nullified the sting of death he has promised to work all things together for his glory so our greatest need is the glory of God and we know that it is because we know that because God is God-centered and because he has promised to preserve us, that that need that we have to increasingly see the glory of God will be met because God is committed to showing his glory. Now, if I can finish with an exhortation and come back to the middle of our passage just in the last few minutes, you'll notice there is a section here in verses 9 to 10 where Jesus speaks about working in the day and not stumbling in the night. Just as God is committed to showing his glory, we as those who have trusted in Jesus Christ must be committed to glorifying God in our lives. Just as God is committed to showing his glory, we must be committed to glorifying God In our lives. And I want to show this by highlighting the themes that Jesus refers to here in verses 9 to 10. Notice that from verse 7, uh, Jesus explains that they must go to Judea again. The disciples basically say, You're crazy. You almost got killed. The Jews tried to stone you. And now you want to go back into Judea. And in verses 9 to 10, Jesus responds by saying, Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Now, this is very similar language if you remember to chapter 9, when Jesus said in chapter 9, We must works the work of him. This is 9.4. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work, but as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So while Jesus is here, it's daytime. While Jesus is here, he's the light of the world. It's daytime, he is the source of life, source of light for all people, and while he is here, the works of God continues. So his response to the disciples who say, you're crazy for going into Judea again, is effectively Jesus saying, I'm operating on my time. I'm not operating on anyone else's time. It's daytime while I'm here. I have 12 hours to work, which is to say I have a God-ordained period of time. I'm operating on my time. And while I'm here, we will continue to go wherever we please because I am operating on my clock, and this is the world's clock. (coughs) We've very clearly seen that Jesus will not be dictated by anyone else. So he is the light of the day. As long as he is here, things will be done, because he is in control. Now, here is the link to our response to glorifying God. If Jesus has his own 12 hours of daylight to work, which is this, metaphorical idea of the period of time, though the Jews understood 12 hours of day to be that difference between day and night. If Jesus has his own 12 hours of daylight to work, we as his followers have our 12 hours, so to speak, of daylight to work, which is to say we have a God-ordained period of time to glorify God in this world. Now, the reason why I say that, and I see a call for us here to glorify God is because Paul uses this same theme of working in the day and not stumbling at night to exhort early believers to glorify God in their lives. When he says in Romans 13 from verse 11, the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. So he's speaking to early believers and he says, the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. Now, these are the same themes that Jesus uses here of working in the day in contrast to stumbling in the night. And Paul is saying, The time is now to awake from sleep. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. Namely, you who are in Christ have the light of Christ within you. It is daytime, therefore live as someone who honors the Lord. So he goes on to say, Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly in the daytime not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. See, here is where we see our responsibility to walk in the day and live by the light of Christ in light of us seeing the glory of God that has been revealed to us in Christ. And in light of us knowing that all things are working toward his glory, we live toward that same purpose. We live toward the purpose of glorifying God because all things are working toward his glory. This is why we cast off darkness. This is why we put to death sin in our bodies. This is why we live honorable and pure lives in this world It is why we persevere through great afflictions and why we fight for satisfaction in Christ above everything else because that glorifies God and glorifying God is what everything in this world is working towards. The glory of God. So we are not spectators toward this end of the glory of God. Rather, we are participants in making sure the glory of God continues to be furthered and magnified in this world. So we are called to walk in the light and live for the glory of God in our complete allegiance to Christ. Now, as I finish, perhaps we see a display of the sheer allegiance that is required of this in the life of Thomas. In this unusual verse, right at the end of our passage today, we read, Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now, it seems that the conversation has just been about thinking Jesus is going to die if he goes back into Judea. And Thomas now says, let us also go, that we may die with him, that is with Jesus. Now, Thomas is often known as doubting Thomas. It's an unfortunate name to have. But perhaps, interestingly, we see maybe Thomas gets it right here where his allegiance to Christ actually allows him to face death boldly. I mean, he actually says, let us go. If Jesus is going to his death, he's our teacher. Let's go and let's die with him. Now, it is a little bit speculative as to what exactly he's saying. This could be something like when Peter sees the transfiguration and he says, let's build these tents, and he really doesn't know what he's talking about. He's so bewildered. We don't know exactly what is happening with Thomas, but an application we can take from this is that our response should be very similar to that. Our response to glorifying God should be: Let us go with Christ and walk in His light, even in the face of death. This is the picture that we will see of baptism today for Damien. That he is showing that he is dead to his old life. The life that he has is now in Christ. Likewise for us, for we who have trusted in Jesus Christ, we continue to take up our cross daily. We continue to go and we die to ourselves so that the life of Christ may be seen and so that the glory of God may be revealed in increasing ways. And the great comfort for us as we seek this end, the comfort for us, just as Mary and Martha find out in this passage, every circumstance that we are in in this life has no sense of meaninglessness Imagine how they would have felt before Jesus came. Their brother is dead. Hope is gone. It seems meaningless. But we know that there is nothing meaningless about our circumstances because everything in some mysterious way is working toward the glory of God. There is intentionality in every aspect of our lives. And therefore we live to further that glory in all things. We live for the glory of God. We take up our cross daily. We further the cause of Christ. We magnify him in everything else. And the foundation for that is that we know all things were made for his glory. We are no longer spectators. We are participants in furthering that glory in every aspect of our lives.